when you don't acknowledge that this actually exists and that my experience may be different from yours because mm-hmm. I am black and you are white, um, then you are absolutely perpetuating racism. Mm. Right? Because when you when you can't see it, when you don't see it, when you choose not to see it, you don't do anything about it. Right. But I also think that you should, and it's very it's difficult now. But you need to broaden your circle. You need to be proximate to different kinds of people, and start embracing their various identities. Um, you know, examine your own, examine the way in which you were socialized, and then see other people, see others' identities, uh, embrace them, uh, welcome them into your life. I think that's a that's the way to go. You know, if you have joy to exude, then you should. If you have good things to give, then you should. Um, maybe we won't win. <laughs> you, know, you know, we should still do it. That's Myrna Valerio. And this is The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Greetings, citizens. It is I, Rich Roll, your host. This is my podcast. Thanks for joining me. As many of you guys know, I have a great passion for running. It's a theme that I consistently explore on this show with a wide variety of like-minded enthusiasts, everybody from marathon champions to all kinds of people who have leveraged the power of running for tremendous personal transformation, which is a second recurring theme on the show. A third favorite theme is breaking paradigms. And a fourth is forging a more just and equitable world for all. Myrna Valerio embodies all of these themes and so much more. She's somebody who basically redefines what comes to mind when we think of professional athleticism. Running is something that gave Myrna a whole new life. She's an endurance athlete who is neither white nor thin, but very much a badass of her own design. Somebody who's breaking boundaries, broadening inclusivity, and essentially forcing all of us to think more broadly about things like equality and inclusion, both outdoors and in. The force of nature, affectionately known as the Myrnavator. She is one of the most inspirational athletes I've ever met. She's a true ambassador of sport, somebody who's on a mission to empower humans of all shapes, sizes, colors, and genders to proudly embrace their bodies, to expand their horizons, and ultimately own their truth. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology, technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, 
built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. 
Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay, back to Myrna. I love this woman. This is a great one that spans her evolution into a full-time sponsored running professional, all the way to her work as a diversity and inclusion educator. We talk about running, of course. We talk about identity and the way in which we see ourselves as this lens through which we see the world. We discuss the differences between body inclusion versus body positivity and body acceptance. We talk about everyday racism in the outdoor world and industry and the work required to assess and overcome our own internalized unconscious beliefs. This is about defining your values, embodying them every day, and Myrna's joyful self-acceptance is really infectious. It's also real, it's rare, it's authentic, it's bold and inclusive. She's just completely fun to talk to, unapologetic and 100% herself. I gotta admit that after, what is it, like 130 days now of stay in place quarantine, among other things, melancholy has creeped up on me kind of comes and goes, but there's something about Myrna's joy and her gleeful demeanor that really cheered me up. And I think she's gonna cheer you up as well. So let's do this. This is me and the Myrna Vader. Well, cool, we're back. How many years has it been since we did three this? Years, it's been three. three years, almost three. Yeah, I remember it vividly. We were in your hotel room. You were in town for some kind of education mm -hmm. conference and we were down in Anaheim. <laughs> It was fun. Dingy room at the uh, embassy suites. I know, <laughs> like, <laughs> but I'm really happy to have you back here today. It's really nice to see you. Although likewise, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. So a lot has changed in the three years since we last sat down, uh, culturally, socially, mm -hmm. of course, but, mm -hmm. but also personally for you. I mean, you're now a full-time professional athlete, basically. Sure. Right? <laughs> <laughs> if you want to put it that way, yeah. uh, uh, i I usually call myself, well, I'm a sponsored athlete, but I do right. other things as well. That makes you a professional athlete okay, in my fine. book. You make your living as an athlete. You get I to do. travel around and do what you love and talk about things that you love, which is pretty awesome. I do. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So what was that like to make that leap? Like you were you were an educator at you, like a private high school, right? Right. When um, I last saw you. I had been in education for 18 years mm -hmm. when I decided that doing all of this that I'm doing now and teaching and working at a boarding school um, was too much. Yeah. And also I was making more money <laughs> doing the other stuff. Uh -huh. So uh, I decided to take a leap and it was a really giant leap um, out of education, out of that security net <laughs> that I had, um, just in terms of everything, in terms of 
my salary, in terms of healthcare, and in terms of somewhere to live uh-huh. uh, because I worked at boarding schools. But I just decided to go for it. And I had the full support of my family. Um, my kid stayed at the boarding school for another year while I figured out what and how I was going to, uh, how I was going to do this, how mm-hmm. I was going to plant myself somewhere and continue to do all the media stuff and to do the professional athlete thing and to do everything else that I was doing. Uh, And it took a couple of months. It took a long time to believe that I could actually function without being attached to a workplace, Mm -hmm. so to speak. And... But, you know, but again, I had all these awesome opportunities. Uh, I ended up in Vermont. <laughs> right. So when did you move to Vermont? You were living in Georgia. I, well, I was living in Georgia. And then after that, after I had to move out of my house because it was school property. Right. I floated around a little bit. I lived in Atlanta for the summer uh, in a friend's apartment. And then I headed my way back up to Brooklyn and slept on a couch for a couple of months. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, when I decided that that was... <laughs> That was enough of that. Uh You know, on a whim, decided to go up and visit a friend who lives in Vermont. And, you know, we were going to have a week of adventure. We were going to ski and take a snowboard lesson, do some indoor rock climbing, um, do some snowshoeing. And so I went up there and loved it for a week. I I only went for a week Uh (laughs) and decided that I needed to live there Mm. in the dead of winter. And I discovered that there were apartments at the inn where I was staying and I ended up staying at those apartments Uh and moved in the next month and I'm not trying to move out of Vermont again. (laughs) Like I'm not trying to move anywhere. That's it. I I love it. I absolutely love it. It's a community that I think I need to be in. I'm in Montpelier in the capital city. City in quotes, because it's a very small right. a city. Hamlet. <laughs> yes, it's it's a hamlet, the hamlet of Montpelier, <laughs> and uh, it's convenient. My son loves it. He's seventeen years old, and I've made him move to a lot of different places, and he is having a great That's time great. there. So, and tons yeah. of trails, trails everywhere. Like even though I'm in a stuff. city, <laughs> right. I can. Well, I'm not running right now. We can talk about that later. Uh, <laughs> I can, you know, walk or run uh, to a trail half mile away yeah. and, you know, just be ensconced in the forest. Right. Yeah. That's cool. So how come you're not running right now? You got an injury? I, yeah, I have a torn meniscus, mm. which is really fun. It's <laughs> your first, first real injury? My, well, I've, I've noticed some, you've been out on the bike a lot. Yeah. Uh, we should talk about that because yeah. it's my new sport now. Um, <laughs> but, ultra cyclist. <laughs> I don't know about ultra cycling, but um, I definitely love uh, being out there on a bike. But yeah, I uh, had some Achilles injuries or an Achilles injury still on my left foot, but you can run with mm-hmm. that. Um, it just takes a long time to recover. And then I started having issues in my knees, which I had never had to deal with before. And and it just got worse and worse, like over the course of a month. You do that thing where you just pretend it's going to go away and you keep running? Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Rich. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it would get better, you know, for two uh-huh. days and then it would get significantly worse. And then I finally... 
went on a big hike and, uh, and then that night my leg was really stiff and like the whole leg was swollen and that, that was um, very, very unusual. And so I finally went to the doctor. Mind you, during my transition from being uh, a full-time teacher to this thing that I'm doing now, I didn't have health insurance mm. because yeah. America. And, <laughs> and um, okay. right. so, but I finally have health insurance. And so I decided to go and use it. And, um, and it turned out to be, um, they thought it was runner's knee at first, um, a little bit of arthritis, which that runs in my family. And, uh, but then finally I went for an MRI and, yeah. and then they uh, found out it was a torn meniscus. So I will have surgery in a few weeks and hopefully that will take care of a lot of the issues there yeah. and uh, and I'll be back running. I really miss it. In the meantime, you can ride a bike. I can no ride problem. a bike. I've been on a gravel bike, uh-huh. which is my new second favorite thing. <laughs> I still haven't done that. I got to get out on one of those. Oh man, it's phenomenal. I mean, in, in Vermont, it's almost 50% right. um, dirt roads. So right. you run out of pavement really quickly uh-huh. <laughs> and you have to ride dirt roads. So, and it's, and it's so fun. It's this thing, <laughs> this yeah. thing that I do now. And the family yeah. likes it in Vermont? The family loves it. My, I mean, my son loves it. Uh, my husband who lives part-time in New York and also in West Africa, mm-hmm. he came up and visited and, and was like, wow, I can like be on a mountain. I can walk. I can ride a bike. I can eat really good food and relax. Uh-huh. And it's clean here because <laughs> he, he normally yeah. lives in the Bronx or in Harlem. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's a very different experience. So he for does him. A, is that just where his job is? Or? Well, that's what we, when he is in the States, he works as a truck driver and a tow truck driver and some other things. And so that's where a lot of the work is. And so he stays down right. there and then, and then he goes home to run his business, which is mm. in technology. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you get to travel all around and run races and talk to people and Mm -hmm. talk about your book and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And you've done a lot of races. I think, were you training for a hundred miler when the injury happened or? No. No? I um, I mean, I know you were like on- not training for a 100 miler. You were on like Good Morning America talking Um, about Dan Harris about your hundred miler. (laughs) Not that long ago. Well, no, I said one day Uh (laughs) I would like to maybe train for a hundred one. 100 miler. All right. Um, but, and then they gifted me, uh, Good Morning America didn't, but uh, TCS, which is the title sponsor of mm-hmm. the TCS New York City Marathon, gifted me four of their races uh-huh. around the world. And uh, and I told them. them in the interview that, oh, I'm going to take 2020 to be a rest year so that mm. maybe I can... Um, start from zero and then start training for a yeah. 100 miler. And then they gifted me <laughs> these four races <laughs> for 2020. And I said, okay, well, I'll just have to put that off for a year. But then COVID happened. and Yeah, well, so, everybody's putting it off yeah, for a year. right. So your injury kind of happened at the correct it time. It is the perfect yeah. time. And I'm actually really grateful that it happened now, that uh, that all the races are canceled, all the events are canceled. And now I can just take care of myself mm. and rest. How does it feel to rest? A lot of runners are, get really uncomfortable mm-hmm. with that. It's this is like you got to be with yourself in a different kind of way. It's an extended taper period. That's yeah. what it is. <laughs> um, you know what? It, I actually haven't had a whole lot of rest. I, you know, to be completely honest, I've been swamped with work mm. uh, since. You know, I was actually in LA in March for the LA Marathon, and um, and then spent a couple of days out west here, and then went back 
east, and that's when everything shut down. And um, <laughs> I thought I would have some time to just chill and sleep, and I did for about uh -huh. two weeks. But then I started getting a lot of requests for some motivational, inspirational speaking mm. because people were down in the dumps. Yeah. And so I did a lot of that. And I don't even, I don't market myself as a motivational speaker or an inspirational speaker. I just tell my story. I just talk about what the things that are I'm doing that bring me joy. And, uh, but I, I think people get a lot out of it. So um, that's what I was doing yeah. for a long time. And then racism happened or, or continues right. to happen. <laughs> and then, and then I was pulled in again to even more work. So I yeah. have, I have been working nonstop. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get into how you've been pulled back into this education space. But before we do that, I mean, we went into your story in great detail last time and people should go back and listen to that. I love that episode um, and that conversation, but it might make sense for people who haven't heard that mm -hmm. to kind of recap your sure. story a little bit. Maybe you could do it in the context of your, your motivational pitch. <laughs> But I don't have a motivational <laughs> well, pitch. Share your story. Marna. Share my story. Well, back in. <laughs> um, so in 2008, I had this health scare where I thought I was having a heart attack. And um, it turned out not to be a heart attack, thank goodness. Uh, I happened to be in a car on my way back from a weekend gig with my son in it. And I started having chest pains and eventually decided stupidly though to continue home and while I was having those chest pains a colleague of mine took me to the doctor took me to the emergency room where it was determined that I wasn't having a heart attack but that I had had a panic attack mm. which I thought was strange uh, and impossible for black people <laughs> you know because we're always so chill uh-huh and <laughs> Pan panic free. And I even said that to the doctor. I said, "Black people don't have panic attacks." And he looked He's at like, me as what? though I was, I was crazy. Yeah. And uh, but then you know that set off a, a, a stream of doctors' appointments and cardiologists' appointments, where the cardiologist that I that I eventually saw said that uh, basically that I was going to die if I didn't change my lifestyle. And I heard him very well. I knew what he meant. And so I decided that I absolutely needed to change something in my life if, you know, if I wasn't going to eventually have a cardiac event. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I got back on my treadmill and this, incidentally, this treadmill was one that I had purchased a couple of months before, but that I hadn't been using. Uh -huh. And it was I use it as a closet. <laughs> like most people. You know, right, I had shoes on it, belts, clothing, coats. And, uh, and so I cleaned it off the next day and got back on it, did my first mile in about three and a half years. And that mile was very painful, not just physically, but mostly emotionally because I had let myself get to a point where I couldn't run a mile anymore. And that felt really awful and gross. Mm. And, um, and you, you'd like played field hockey yeah, in I played high school. Field hockey, like I played lacrosse, both uh -huh. varsity. And, um, you know, I was an athlete. I'd, I'd had been an athlete since high school. And, you know, I ran on and off recreationally um, throughout my young adulthood. And I was, I was always very, very active. But when I moved from New York to Maryland, that's when things changed. That's, um, 
and I, I started gaining a bunch of weight and uh, having lots of health issues, dental issues. My kid was always sick. And I, I mean, that's really the crux of the whole story is my kid was always sick, mm-hmm. which meant that I was always sick and I was always missing work. He was always missing school. Um, and that is very, very stressful. Um, I was living with alone with him in Maryland. My husband was in New York. And um, was that the so, inciting incident for the panic attack? That whole three year period yeah. probably was, uh, because it was a very stressful existence. I, um, I didn't enjoy my job a whole lot. Uh, I thought I was really good at it, and I think I was. I, I was. I was really good at my job, um, but I was also balancing being, you know, living the existence of a single parent right. while having this job where or where I wasn't appreciated. <laughs> and um and so I think that sort of culminated in a lot of things happening with me physically. Mm. And then uh eventually I decided to leave that job because it was just it wasn't a healthy thing uh for me to be doing with my family. It wasn't healthy right. for my family either. And so I moved back north to New Jersey <laughs> uh, to an even more stressful job, but at least I was closer to family. And that's where I had uh, this health scare. I was also teaching, I was teaching full-time. I was in grad school. Um, I was obviously a mom <laughs> and a wife. And I was also teaching on the weekends too in Maryland. And right. so um, all that mixed up together, created this existence that wasn't very right. um, healthy or helpful for me. And that's why I had that health scare. And so I, when, when that cardiologist told me that I was going to die if I didn't change my lifestyle, I, I really did make a decision to change a lot of things. I prioritized my day. Uh, I stopped bringing work home, which is really difficult to do when you work in a boarding school. I um, I would get up super early and and hop on the treadmill for an hour, and then do Pilates and and then do awful um, <laughs> Biggest Loser videos, uh-huh. <laughs> really really awful. But I did them anyway uh, because I needed to change um, drastically. And so I mean, and and I did. I would work out for five hours a day. Wow. Uh, yeah, I was really committed to changing my life. Um, in a very drastic way. So uh, that, that's what I did. Right. And, uh, and little, you know, little did you know that this would knew? set in motion <laughs> this entire new life that you live now, right? Who knew? Was there a breakthrough moment where you thought, where you really just embraced this idea that I am a runner and this is like the path that I'm gonna blaze for myself? I don't think there was one moment. I think I just slowly grew into a running persona. Mm-hmm. And I never really had any qualms about whether or not I was a runner. Like I I ran, therefore I was a runner. Mm-hmm. But as far as like the really deep <laughs> running persona um, and, and identifying deeply as a runner, I think that just came about organically. Um, and then it was, it's always a surprise to me that people who run don't think they're runners. Because yeah. if you run, you use your body for running. <laughs> it's something you do regularly. This, you, you, you are, are what runner. you do, right? Right. Well, we all measure ourselves up against some idealized version mm-hmm. of what that means or is. Right. 
And the truth is, you know, 99.99% of people that are out <laughs> running are not, you know, winning marathons and things like that. This is the greatest participation sport. But mm-hmm. I think what's interesting about your story and what I'm interested in is your example and your story kind of catalyzed a broader conversation about body positivity and what does it mean to be an athlete? Were you surprised at the kind of narrative that emerged out of what you've done or did you see that coming? Uh, I did not see that coming. (laughs) And I was surprised by the narrative because I just did what I needed to do for my body. And I made it public when I started a blog. And I only did that because someone suggested that I do it. Um, And it still is surprising to me that this is even a story. Right. I'm a fact girl who runs. The (laughs) story continues to grow. Like you're everywhere. Like I... I first came across your story by by way of that REI mm-hmm. uh, video that kind of went viral, the Mernovator. But I keep seeing new stuff popping up all the time. Like people are continuing to discover your story, which is wild, right? It and you're is. like, I well, I'm here for it, <laughs> <Okay>. right? <laughs> like I, I, I have yeah. no complaints, but it yeah. is it is crazy to me that it's that it's a thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as I you know as I said, like I'm just a person who likes to run and I like to exercise, but on the other hand, I know that there are lots of people who, for for whom, like this thing that I'm doing is seems to be inaccessible to them mm-hmm. because they have this idea that a runner looks this way, a runner runs this quickly, um, a person who hikes is a certain body type, a certain race, <laughs> probably male, um, and so when they see me, it blows their minds that I'm out there doing those same things um, unapologetically um, and without regard for what people think I should be doing Mm -hmm. and where people think I should Mm -hmm. be doing it. The unapologetic part is a big part of it Mm -hmm. too. Like you always have this huge smile and you're the life of the party on the trail. And I think I don't there's know about a the sense, life of the party. <laughs> well, there's this sense like, oh, well, you know, I'm here, but I really shouldn't be here. Like mm-hmm. the sheepishness mm-hmm. that perhaps somebody, you know, somebody else who's, a, who's, you know, trying to make this work would feel in that experience. Well, I definitely, when, when I started trail running, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> uh-huh. um, Nobody does. Right. I still don't know what I'm doing. Um, but, you know, I would just kind of like hang in the back and listen to the race directors and and then go off on an adventure because I always see it as an adventure. And again, not knowing what I was doing, not knowing what I was in for. But as I became used to that and more comfortable with like the unknown Uh (laughs) aspect of of trail running and anything that you do in the outdoors, um, I, I definitely became more comfortable just being in those spaces. Um, and that's just some, that's how I operate in any uncomfortable situation. I'll, I'll hang in the back and observe, learn things. Uh, and then as I become more comfortable, I, yeah. um, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> acclimate. I, well, I acclimate, but I'll, I extend myself more and more mm-hmm. um, when I'm in those situations. Yeah. What's also interesting is that you know, trail running isn't exactly the most diverse sport out there. What? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so so juxtaposed against running more broadly, you know, black people dominate running in, you know, all the way from the 100 meters to the, to the marathon, but you don't see a lot of black people on the trail. You don't. 
Uh, <laughs> that is true. Uh, and that's, there are a lot of reasons that um, it is that way in trail running and in hiking, mm-hmm. because obviously those two are related. Uh, I think, um, and people definitely are surprised when they see me on a trail, you know, unless they know who I am already. But uh, when you're famous now, (laughs) I'm not famous, but you know, like it's you know in the niche in a trail running niche, I you know people people know who I am, and so it's not as much of a surprise. But if I'm somebody else, um, hey, hi, Mm. (laughs) how are you? Where are you from? And there are a lot of questions and. that try to get at why you're here. <laughs> yeah. um, and you can read it in people's body language too. Um, sort of questioning like, oh, wow, how did this person get the- here? Why, uh-huh. are, why are they on this trail? Um, and so I definitely have had experiences uh, when, for example, I was, I signed up for a hiking, a, a, a group hike out of a store in New Jersey and the hike leader, even though I was dressed in, trail running clothes. And I was, I mean, I was decked out. I had my Nathan, yeah. <laughs> I had All my trail running shoes, my wool socks. I mean, I was decked out, but she only came to me and asked me if I was ready for this hike. Uh, and it could have been because I'm fat. <laughs> I don't know, but I was also the only black person there. Um, did I have enough water and have a hydration pack? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, do you have food? Um, yeah, I've, I've got bars. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. You can... Go pay attention to the right. other people that are here. So, um, so that happens sometimes. But um, you know, there's a lot of history behind why outdoor spaces that are in forests uh, are considered to be white spaces. Uh, and so, so number one, that might make them um, inhospitable for people who are not like me. I I will stick my ass anywhere I, I feel like I belong. Uh, but a lot of people don't have that sense of entitlement. So, mm-hmm. um, or don't know that they could be out there hiking or trail running too, because look at the representation in media. Who do you see? You see what you see people like you, Rich. Yeah. It's you. Yeah. Uh, maybe a lady. <laughs> um, and you don't, you definitely don't see me. Although I have been privileged to appear in a lot of publications. Um, but I'm only one person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm honored to be able to be that one person uh, so that people can kind of see themselves or envision themselves doing the things that I do. But there isn't enough. Um, so I think representation is um, really, really crucial and uh, lacking <laughs> uh, in terms of what we see as the outdoors, who we see in the outdoors, and who we see doing these outdoor activities. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Yeah, it's 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 wild. You know, you mentioned that there's a lot of history behind why outdoor spaces 
have been considered off limits to people of color. Like it's sickening and disheartening mm-hmm. to hear that. Mm-hmm. I believe it to be true, but I, I can tell you that I haven't spent a lot of time mm-hmm. thinking about why that might be. Well, if you think about how the national parks were formulated um, and how that land was stolen from Native populations without regard to any of their history or their domiciles. Um, I mean, that's just one part of that. Mm. And and I I also think of how um, just land in the U.S., (laughs) ownership of land is very, very white. Ownership of any sort of real estate or land is, is very white. Um, and so when someone like me appears, uh, like I look like I don't belong <laughs> because the ownership of land has been traditionally white. And so, I mean, there, there's the government, there are, there are private entities, um, that are also responsible for this sort of whitewashing of land in, uh, in the U S. Um, and, and then there's, you know, white supremacy, <laughs> white supremacist mm-hmm. ideology that, you know, black people don't belong, and and we are we are seen as nuisances in many different types of spaces. So, mm-hmm. uh, and there's research on that too, on like blacks as a nuisance mm-hmm. in public spaces. It's so it's, heavy. It's really heavy. Yeah. You see, I'm smiling because it's so heavy, um, and it's and to have to think about that constantly. But and I do think about it constantly. Mm-hmm. Like every second that I'm on a trail. I mean, I may be smiling and I may be gracious and um, affable, but I am always, always thinking about whether or not people think I belong. And, you know, is somebody going to ask me a dumbass question uh, or are they going to say something stupid or are they going to make me feel as though I'm not welcome? I'm always thinking of mm. that, and which is why I'm like so effusive with my cheer <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because I have to be. Do you, yeah, you feel like part of that is a defense mechanism to put other people at ease, Absolutely. which makes you feel more safe. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the story of every black runner. Yeah. Every single person who goes out and runs um, who is black, you know, they we have to signal. <laughs> You know, there's a term for it. It's called signaling, uh, to signal to other people that we are safe to be around and we are not a threat. So, um, yeah, you hear stories of of black runners who will wear a sweatshirt or a t-shirt that has a fancy college name Mm -hmm. on it or something like that Mm -hmm. to make white people feel like this person is not a threat. It doesn't matter. It it doesn't matter what you put on. I, I, you know, again, I. I'm always decked out in the latest gear, right? right. I wear bright colors. <laughs> I, you know, I've got my running cap and my trucker cap on, a, a race shirt or something that signals to people that I'm a runner. I was, when I still lived in Georgia, I was running down my own street. Um, and I was two miles, but I had done... 14 miles. And so I was finishing up the last two miles to do a 16 miler. On my way back home, a woman in a white SUV was coming in the opposite direction and stops about a quarter of a mile away from me. I'm slow, so it takes me a long time to do a quarter quarter of a mile. So I was still pretty far away from her. Uh, So she stops, she takes out her phone. She's looking at me. She's talking on her phone, looking at me, talking on her phone. Again, I am like, really decked out. Mm-hmm. I mean, sweaty, <laughs> but really decked out in all my running gear. And uh, and then she gets off the phone and 
slowly rolls by me and looks at me. And I wave. I'm smiling. Hey. Um, wondering and what the hell she was doing. And you do that on purpose because on you purpose. know. you Yeah. Okay. And then not even five minutes later, a uh, cop car rolls by from that same direction that she had been going. And he slowed down, roll down the window, look at me. I wave. In my head, I'm like, what the fuck? Right. And that cop rolls away. And then another one comes from the opposite direction. Um, slows down, rolls her window down, um, and then I wave again. Hey, have a good day. And this uh, is in your and neighborhood. It, this is two miles away from my house. And, <laughs> you know, and in my head, I'm like, I'm just running. I am running. I did have a walking stick that I carried because uh-huh. there were lots of dogs. Uh, there were like no leash laws <laughs> where I used to live. And so there were dogs everywhere. And so I would have to bang the stick on the ground to get the dogs away from me. Um, and so, but it was a very fancy carved walking stick. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, you know, and so when I got back home, I, I, of course I posted this on Facebook cause you know, that's what I do. And, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, we had some laughs about it. And uh, a friend, one friend called me a suspicious black lady running, <laughs> SBLR. <laughs> I'm just going to get T-shirts made. And, um, but some other people sort of questioned whether or not, you know, I looked dangerous because I had a walking stick with me. White people, of course. You know, maybe, maybe you know, she was worried. Maybe she was scared by the stick you were carrying. I was like, in my, in my pink shirt right. <laughs> that I was wearing, in my, in my Nathan hyd- yeah. hydration pack, and my dirty running shoes. I mean, that's the sort of thing that I think gives people pause. Yeah. Um, there's a sociologist named uh, Dr. Rishon Ray who has done a study of why black people don't exercise in certain types of neighborhoods because of per- perceived um, danger for their person. And, um, and it's, <laughs> and, and that's exactly it. That's right. what it is. Like we, we signal, we wave, we smile, we are extra friendly and bubbly but it doesn't seem to matter. I mean, look at Ahmad Arbery just yeah. running in a neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, as you you're know? telling the story, I can't stop thinking about him and and how you know the, your your story isn't that dissimilar from his. It has a different outcome, obviously, mm-hmm. but the circumstances are related, and yeah. you can't you can't you can't listen to the story you just told without conjuring up what might have gone terribly wrong mm-hmm. because somebody is confused about who you are and what you're doing. And, and, and it's, why I'm there. Right. Even though it's very clear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, your signaling couldn't be more clear. Right. And I'm just picturing you running, like what is threatening about that? And what's going on with that person in the SUV that they're feeling so threatened by mm-hmm. you? Where is that confusion emanating from? Yeah. And what's going on in their life that they would... What 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 is embedded in their programming that perceives that as a threat or something to be scared of? White supremacy is embedded in their programming. That's what exactly what that is. So let's talk about that. I mean, you have 
you know, a big part of your educational career was mm. teaching diversity, right? So now, now you're you're back <laughs> doing that once again, <laughs> including teaching anti-racism, right? You're doing this online. Yes. Um, so walk me through <laughs> what that's all about. So I, I will say that when I left teaching in 2018, I had no plans on doing further work in diversity, uh -huh. equity, and inclusion because it's hard stuff. I mean, it's really, really hard. Um, it takes a lot out of me emotionally. And I was doing it in, in um, North Georgia um, where it, I loved my job. I loved developing curriculum and, and doing seminars and workshops with the students. Uh, it was tougher to do it with the with adults. The parents. <laughs> not even with the parents, just with my colleagues. Mm. Uh, not all of them though, uh, but it was really tough. Um, it was a boarding school, right? It was, was a boarding it school. Predominantly white Predominantly school? white, but you know, with a large... Um, population of um, international students uh, and quite a few people who are black, either black American or from the islands or from Africa. So it was very diverse um, for a boarding school. And, uh, and so like, as I said, I had lots of fun um, doing the work with the students uh, and, 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 faculty members who were also sold uh -huh. on the work of diversity and social justice. But it was really difficult to do that work with uh, constant opposition um, as far as what I could do, what I could talk about, um, you know, what was what was not going to rile up the parent community. Right, what's palatable. And I did, and I mean, I did anyway. what's going to be inciting. <laughs> I did anyway. I, I you know I was very privileged in that I could really do whatever I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, had an unlimited budget to send people to conferences, to go to conferences, to do programming. But it was still really hard because you know I was dealing with a fairly conservative community in North Georgia, and so um, there are many things that I couldn't do um, because it probably wasn't safe to do. Um, and so it ended up weighed on me very heavily. And I, and I will say that my blood pressure went up when I was living down in Georgia. Yeah. Uh, and there is definitely a correlation between racist, racist acts, racism in general, and uh, hypertension in the black community. Mm. And I- Because you're, you're in a chronic state of alert. Right. right? Any, anytime I'm driving, anytime I got pulled over twice- and, you know, and, and, and I think getting pulled over for anyone is a stressful experience, but especially for black people when there's so many, um, so many incidences where people don't uh, come out of those yeah. situations alive. Um, it's scary, you know, even though I'm a black woman and doesn't ha happen as frequently to black women, but look at Sandra Bland. Um, you know, it was, uh, whose suicide was, is very suspicious. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm worried about my son just kind of existing as a day student. He was, when I was there, he was a day student. And so sometimes he would walk back and forth to school on our road, you know, same road where that woman called the cops on me. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he's tall and he's black. Right. <laughs> and so I constantly worried about him. And um, so, yeah, I definitely, you know, for someone who has never, ever had issues with, uh, blood pressure that started when I actually when I started doing that work down uh -huh. south, and like we uh, need yeah. we need diversity education, but don't be too provocative. Yeah, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And that's, and that's why diversity education doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. Diversity education is meant to be celebratory, like to, to, to celebrate our differences and to celebrate the way that that enhances all of our lives. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, equity and inclusion and anti-racism requires that you are constantly working like under the umbrella of social justice work. And it's not just, yeah, we want to definitely, absolutely embrace everyone's various identities. But um, there's another part to the work that's really hard and you have to be very uh, introspective and metacognitive about your own attitudes and beliefs and how they and how they perpetuate racism. Right, and somebody so, has to be willing to probe inward yes. who's on the receiving yes. end of what you have mm-hmm. to say, right? Because mm-hmm. it's easy for me to listen to you tell these stories and I think, you know, as a as a white straight male, I hear the story of the woman in the SUV, and I'm like, well, that's not me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not part of that problem, mm-hmm. right? But the real work is is looking inward enough to see where I am playing a part in right. this, right? And and you you have to be open enough and vulnerable enough to to tackle that for yourself, and not everybody is, right? So. Yeah. I was reading, I just pulled up this article. I don't know if you saw it. Um, that was in the New York Times Sunday Magazine about Robin DiAngelo's work. Did mm-hmm. you, it's like this long read article about it, it, white fragility is everywhere, but does anti-racism training actually work, right? And it sort of unpacks mm-hmm. the very thing that you're talking mm-hmm. about, which is you're confronting people with some very uncomfortable truths mm-hmm. about not just society, but perhaps our own individual behavior and people get provoked and defensive and they don't wanna hear it, right? So that in turn leads to a bit of a backlash. And I think so we're seeing that culturally right that now. That is, but <laughs> this is, oh, I love talking about this. Yeah, thing. so this is, why, <laughs> this is why I wanna talk to you. Okay, so uh, part of the, in, in the course that I teach introduction to identity, social justice, and anti-racism, that's what I do. I want to hit people individually. Um, and and I want to bring them to, oh, I introduced this framework. It's a framework called White Racial Identity for Anti-Racism, right? And by uh, Dr. Janet Helms out of Boston College. And there are differing stages. Right. And so what you just mentioned, kind of people pulling back and shutting down from those conversations, that is one of the stages of achieving an anti-racist identity. You know, we have that first stage, which is contact, where people are colorblind um, mm-hmm. and they don't see color. We're all you know, part of the human race. <laughs> right. And, uh, and then you uh, travel through various stages, uh, disintegration, reintegration, and, and each of those stages has elements of what you we're just talking about, um, where people, they know racism happens. They know that there is a thing called white privilege and that, uh, and I'm talking specifically about people in a white community and they, and they know um, that they benefit from white privilege, but then, but then what? Right. You read white what you, fragility. What do you do with that? You read how to be anti-racist. <laughs> you read all of these, you know, so you want to talk about racism or, um, so you can do that, but a lot of people stop there and they don't continue to examine themselves or they, you know, they might give money to the NAACP defense fund or they might give money to the Minnesota fund, um, the, the bailout fund. Um, 
but then they don't actually do the work themselves. Or start Venmoing their mm -hmm. black friends, $5. Okay, I have several. <laughs> Did you get any Venmos? I got, I got so much money from people. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a weird thing. And I didn't want to be an asshole and return right. it. Uh, I didn't need the money. Uh -huh. um, but uh, I did get a lot of money. Hey, you know, uh, from people I didn't know. Right. Uh, or people who were my followers. And, and I, I really appreciate the gesture. I think, uh, I think. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a strange start. combination mm -hmm. of, of good intentions met with perhaps confusion. Or, it's guilt and or, shame. Right, that's what and, it is. Yeah, okay. uh, and so that's. One of the stages. Yeah. Um, there was a there's a yeah. podcast called Reply All that mm. that does long form stories mm -hmm. on weird things that happen on the internet, and they did a whole hour on this very thing, interviewing black people mm -hmm. who'd received money, mm -hmm. <laughs> money, and sharing their experience <laughs> of what that felt like. I'm like, y'all just hit up my yeah. Patreon, you know, just. <laughs> Yeah. Don't, don't but go ahead, money. I interrupted you. No, no, it's okay. But you know, um, but that you know that sending money and the whole Blackout Tuesday, all of that is was is out of guilt and shame. Uh, mm -hmm. And that is one of the one of the stages of white racial identity. Um, you know, if you're going to eventually travel to um, doing anti-racism work in your life, right? Um, but again, like if you get stuck there, it's stuck there, it's, it's um, that's where a lot of the damage occurs. Um, if you even get stuck in the next stage, um, by being Weird. stuck, yeah. you mean, okay, I did my thing. I did my I thing. I my friend. I, yes, I, I read did this my book. reading. I posted the black square. I'm, I'm an ally. Mm -hmm. That's that's who I am. I, I'm going to call myself an ally, and I'm not going to do any further work or any uh, examination of my own attitudes and beliefs, which are probably racist. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, um, and so, you know, and then, so as you travel along that spectrum, there is, um, there's even one, one part of this, one stage that is, where you start blaming the victim um, and you say things like, well, he shouldn't have been playing loud music in his car. He shouldn't have been using a counterfeit 20. Um, or Ahmad you know, shouldn't have been running through a construction running, site. Right, he shouldn't have stopped and looked at this house under construction. He shouldn't have done that. Uh, she should have put out her cigarette when the cop asked her to. Mm. But do, did all these people deserve to die because they had a counterfeit $20 bill or they were running? <laughs> um, and so, so that's actually one of those stages. But, you know, the thing is that when you can be metacognitive and you can observe yourself having those thoughts and say, oh, I am having this really negative thought that is probably racist uh, and damaging. Um, when you can do that, when you have the ability to see yourself saying those things, feeling those things, and then you can say, well, I don't, I don't really believe that. <laughs> I don't, um, I know that this is, I know that this sort of attitude perpetuates racism. And then you move on to the next stage um, where you actually start doing something, you start, you do the reading and stuff and you start really trying to connect with people in the white community as I'm, and I'm talking again, specifically about white people, um, who are trying also to do the work. Um, that's, that's the only way I think. And you, you also have to collaborate with pe people mm. of color. 
<laughs> so when you say, I think there's a lot of confusion around what the work is. When you're mm-hmm. like, have you done the work? Or yeah. Are you actually doing right. the work? Like, what does that actually mean? The work mean? is social justice work. Um, all of this is encapsulated under that that umbrella, um, where all members of our society um, have equitable access to all of the resources that we have, and and then these. Uh, resources uh, and this access are ecologically sustainable. So that's that's what social justice work is, and and anti racism is a part of social justice work because obviously we we there are lots of other isms that we have to contend with: sexism, um, transphobia, you know, uh, ism, right. <laughs> and you know. So there are lots of uh, other things that to contend with, but you know, anti racism is a facet of that. And so if you are saying that you are a person that does the work, uh, you are continually educating yourself, collaborating with people um, beyond and not centering your own experience um, while you are doing the work. Uh, and, and Meaning, what do you mean not centering your um, experience? Well, you know, um, when, when people center their uh, own experiences, I, this, this is actually, it's, it's a part of um, how lots of conversations get shut down. Um, and this is what white fragility is all about. It's all about centering your own experience. Um, Meaning, I don't do I, that. I see well, other well, people I don't are doing do that. that but well, I'm not. And, well, I have a black friend, and <laughs> uh-huh. or my husband is black, or my wife is black, and so that doesn't happen to. I don't do that. That doesn't happen to me. It doesn't apply to me. Um, it's a way of shirking responsibility right. mm-hmm. for dealing with the broader problem or, or unpacking what it, what isn't like the the systemic imprint of all of this upon our own personal mm-hmm. psyches that's so deeply embedded that we're not consciously aware right. of how it gets manifest in our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's, that's part of what I do. And um, so in the course, you know, we talk about identity, we talk about um, how identity is the way in which we experience the world. I mean, that's our framework, you know, our, our you know, our gender, wherever we are on that gender spectrum, our race, all of that informs how we experience the world and how people perceive us, right? You look at me as a black woman, you're going to have thoughts mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. what it is I probably do, how I how I speak. You probably have thoughts about that. What are you um, really up to? You know, what? Are, right yeah, now. why are you here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Why are you at this hotel? You know, um, and uh, why are you at my gym? <laughs> I could go on and on, yeah. but you know, I mean, but identity it really is that framework. And once you realize that, as a white person or or as a black person, your world, your experience in life is racialized. Um, once you see that, it is mind blowing, and um, hopefully, you are then able to see others' perspectives and to see how they might walk through the world or how they how they might experience something. And so there's a lot of, um, you know, when I was- It's broadening your empathy aperture. Broadening, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, when I, when I was talking about my experience running on my own street and someone essentially gaslighting me, saying like, well, you know, obviously somebody was scared because you were holding your, mm-hmm. uh, your walking stick uh, and, and not- 
legitimizing the story that I just told and making it into something else um, or saying, oh, that well, that didn't really happen. Yeah. You know, when when we're able to see others' experiences for what they are, there's less gaslighting, there's more legitimizing of my experience and then hopefully movement away from blaming me for whatever just happened mm. and movement towards what can I do to help? What can I do with my own attitudes and my what how have I been socialized? Um, to believe that you're not supposed to be running on this road. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let me look into that. There does seem to be an awakening right now, though. There is a crack in this firmament. Mm. You know, we're having these conversations. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a lot of energy going into trying to transcend this, you know, systemic yeah. situation. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, we're now... We're at the end of July. There's been some distance between the events that catalyzed everything. Do you feel like we're perpetuating the momentum and we're in a position to re create real change? Or do you feel like it's waning? Like, where? how are you sensing all of the, the moment <laughs> right now? <laughs> I think it's all of the you above. You know what I mean? Depending, like, yeah. there was lightning in a bottle mm -hmm. for a minute. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do we still have that lightning in the bottle or are we moving on? Like we did I think that. many of us are moving on. Yeah. yeah, we did that. That's over. Uh -huh. um, we're post-racial society again. <laughs> but I also think there is still momentum. I, I still get lots and lots of calls uh, about- A lot of the, you know, you know Karen activity, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, the, the Karen who's oh, in that white SUV is now <laughs> kind of pivoted to Karen's going crazy about masks. Right. Um, you said it, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so that's continuing to happen. And, and really when you see those videos, it's only white people and white women. Mm -hmm. uh, well, just- it's white women and white men doing it. You don't see people of color doing that uh, with the whole uh, fake civil liberties issue <laughs> on wearing masks. Um, but I, you know, I think to a certain extent, this it is a very ripe time for doing this work and moving ahead. You know, as I said, like I I am getting lots of calls to work with companies, and I that's not what I. I'm used to doing, mm -hmm. um, you know, because I, I think I have a different model uh, as far as uh, the education, the, the, the pedagogical spin that I use to um, engage people in thinking about their identities and how that is the root of all of this stuff. And, and, um, different from the different from ba the basic human resources right, yes. kind of model of dealing yes. with this. You mean? And I and I and I will admit that that a lot of the stuff that I did at school was that sort of human resources uh -huh. kind of thing. But obviously, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we need a new model. I mean, it worked for what it needed to work for, but it doesn't really dismantle um, systemic and, and institutionalized racism. And it, it doesn't. Um, so. I, you know, I think that when, I think we have to look at ourselves individually, you know, there, it has to be a multi-pronged approach. You have your, if you are in a business or something like that, or your, or your workplace, it has to come from the top. It also has to come from within. You have to be uh, examining your, your attitudes, your beliefs, you know, whoever you are, when, you know, whether you're white, whether you are a person of color um, and using that knowledge to 
to further deepen and improve your relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, there's this whole issue of proximity. Like when you don't have uh, a real relationship with somebody outside of your community, that's where the issues start. You don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that lady on a trail, like uh, doing during the hike, she probably didn't know any black people. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, and so... I was a surprise to her. And so she didn't know how to act. <laughs> and so she yeah. thought I didn't know what I was doing. And so when you don't have relationships with somebody like me or, um, you know, out on the trail, for example, you're not going to uh, treat me in a way that I feel welcome um, or treat me like you treat everybody else. Yeah. Um, and I think that that goes for any sort of relationship, whether you're in a workplace, whether you're just your personal relationships. I think proximity is um, is is very, very important. And the more you know yourself and the more you know about other people's identities, the better you are able to relate. Mm. So the pedagogical difference that you're the place that you're coming from that that's distinct from the the typical human resources model is what? Like, what is, what are you finding is most effective in terms of getting people to think differently about Just, this and ultimately behave differently? Um, first of all, with racism, uh, you have to be able to name it you, so that you can actually see it, right? And there are all of these different types of racism. And no one, you know, before we didn't want to talk about racism too deeply mm-hmm. because it's too heavy. Uh, and a lot of people are coming from this colorblind ideology where, you know, we, you know, we are all the same people. We're all, you know, part of the human race, which is true. Right. But then you, when you don't acknowledge that our experiences are racialized and that that's where the problem starts. And so, um, and so that's sort of the, that was the MO of diversity education. Uh Right. So, but now I think, you know, when you start naming racism, you start talking about microaggressions and what they are, what they look like. You start talking about, um, you know, what overt racism is, you know, that's the sort of KKK, um, proud boys, boogaloos, like that's that overt racism. Uh, and yes, absolutely it happens, but the other kind, covert racism, that's the kind we have to watch out for. Um, and so when you can name that, when you can, um, you know, again, talk about microaggressions or, um, or the colorblindness, because that perpetuates racism. And actually, and, and people say that they're colorblind because they don't want to look like they're racists. Well, also, <laughs> I think for somebody of my generation, we were brought up to believe that this is, not only is this the aspiration, but to be non-racist is to be colorblind, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that that belies the underlying truth that perpetuates racism, right. which is to acknowledge these differences in order right. to transcend them. Right. And so you're, you kind of let yourself off the hook when you say that you are colorblind. And, and I... I do want to acknowledge that that is a really ableist term. Um, color evasiveness is a probably a better term, but it's not used as widely. But um, yeah, you uh, you let yourself off the hook. You when you don't acknowledge that this actually exists and that my experience may be different from yours because mm-hmm. I am black and you are white, um, then you are absolutely perpetuating racism. Mm. Right, because when you when you can't see it, when you don't see it, when you choose not to see it, you don't do anything about it. Right, right. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Yeah, yeah it's a it's a it's it's a heavy pill to swallow, mm-hmm. but I don't think that we get to the other side yeah, of it without right. reckoning with that right. in a real way. 
Absolutely. Right. And so and 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 so why why this is why my approach is like it focuses on here are all the different kinds of racism that you might see. Mm-hmm. You know, when uh when you say that I am very articulate, what are you really saying? Mm-hmm. And when you say that with a sense of surprise and wonder, mm-hmm. what are you saying? What is your underlying belief that made you surprised that I'm right. able to articulate myself oh, in this a particular way? This black person way? sitting across from right. me is much smarter than I expected because my expectation mm-hmm. level is premised upon a base underlying mm-hmm. assumption that you're going to be less intelligent. Right. Yeah. Right. That's absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. what it is. And that, that's my, horrible. And my, my kid gets and that no all one the wants time. to yeah. think. <laughs> no. Yeah. Of course, no one <laughs> wants to believe that they would harbor that mm-hmm. even if they're doing it unconsciously. Mm-hmm. But if you can see that in yourself, uh, and I and I know that when I, I mentioned that particular thing in my course and people, I, I, I can see people's body language because maybe they have said that at one point to somebody who is black. Mm-hmm. That is the prime learning opportunity right there because it's really uncomfortable. And I, you know, and I, and I focus on, I was like, look, this is uncomfortable work. You know, I'm not going to call. I'm not going to outright call you a racist because I don't know who you are. <laughs> I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to say that. But if you can realize uh, and acknowledge that some of the beliefs that you have that you have or that you've been socialized with are based on racist assumptions and stereotypes, then we can actually move. Mm-hmm. Um, so or move forward rather. Um, so it's really interesting to to see that process happening. I did. Get, I do get questions. Um, I actually don't allow questions while I'm presenting. Well, I saw your, yeah. you posted that thread. Uh, you said you posted that, you, you like reposted somebody who had posted a thread of how, you know, the questions to ask uh-huh. in the midst of this kind of training mm-hmm. to disrupt the, yeah. the, the curriculum. Right. right? And, and, you know, I'm the boss, so, right. you know, I get to <laughs> decide like, how I want uh, my course to be but because a lot of times it derails the work. A lot of times people will want to argue for argument's sake well, or it's, play it's the devil's advocate. It's bad faith obfuscation to try right. to That's absolutely, kind of, yeah. yeah. And so I, I'm not doing it. This is my course. I developed it. You asked me, you came to me and you paid me to educate you. So that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. And so like, and it's and it's great to like kind of lay these like really heavy things down and allow people to process it in pairs, um, in breakout sessions on Zoom, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is a really cool feature, I think. Uh, because, I, you know, people need time to, to really, uh, to relate the conceptual stuff to their own lives. Right. Here's a definition of racism. Here's a definition of microaggressions. Where have you seen that in your lives? You know, has, have you seen it happening to other people? Has have uh, has a microaggression occurred in your own life? You know, as a woman, has someone said to you, "You're strong for a woman," <laughs> or "You're fast for a woman"? Um, you know, those are all things that we hear constantly, mm-hmm. uh, and they come at us, they just come at us all the time and they have a cumulative negative effect. And so once people can see that, you know, whether they're, we were talking about gender or, or class, <laughs> when you can actually see that and name it, then you can do something about it. It's got to be an uphill battle, though, when you're doing this. It's one thing to do it for people who are going out of their way to sign up for it and pay for mm-hmm. it. But if you're coming into a corporation and you're 
in front of a group of people who are employees mm-hmm. who've just been told like you mm-hmm. have to do this, like that mm-hmm. they didn't necessarily volunteer right. for it or want to be there, <laughs> and they're you know leaning back, uh, yeah, like, you have the oh, body yeah, language, you know, like resentful that they mm-hmm. have to be there in the first place, mm-hmm. in order to really. Um, you know, penetrate that kind of psyche and get them to grok where you're coming from, you're going to have to get them to put their guard down a little bit. But here's, yeah, there's that. But I also think that people who think they are not racist and who are liberals and progressives, that's the community I want to work with because I think that's where a lot mm. of the danger lies. When you think so you are not that. perpetuating yeah, elaborate racism. Because that. um, that's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the Cooper lady <laughs> who, uh, the uh, Central Park. Um, uh-huh, right. The Hillary Clinton the, supporting. The Hil- right. Hillary Clinton, Obama supporting mm-hmm. woman who then turns and tries to get this black man arrested. We all saw the video. We saw the video. I mean, the, that's exactly the what The guy who's is. on the yeah. board of the Audubon Society, the Harvard <laughs> grad. <laughs> Christian Cooper. Yeah. That's um, I believe the name, uh, the lady's name is Rebecca Cooper, maybe. But yeah, but that's precisely the right. Type they have the same last name that I would like to work with. Right. People who you know they have given money to all of the progressive liberal things, and they and they think that they are they are post racial, and they're actually not. That's the that's the kind of people I want to work with. Mm. The people who are uh, so how do you, you know, then so so that person sitting in front of mm-hmm. you? How do you begin to you know deconstruct their identity around this? Um, we go through a, a variety of of exercises. Uh, yeah, I have to always define. I try to de- make sure that I define what these things are. We define identity. We define what you know social justice work is, uh, and then we go we go through. Here, race is an identity. Gender is an identity. Um, sexual. Um, preference or sexual orientation, that's an identity. We go through all of that so they can see that all of these things, uh, all of these aspects of who you are, you know, inform the way you walk through the world. And so um, I asked them to look at a part of their identity um, before we start talking about race and, and really examine where they have been privileged with this particular uh, identity uh, and how this identity offers disadvantage. So we talk about privilege and disadvantage. And then it really gets them thinking about, oh, well, you know, I'm a woman. Um, and so uh, a lot of times people think I am not strong or that I am bossy when a man would be seen as assertive. Mm-hmm. So in other <laughs> you words, know, you're so trying to get them to identify with some analog of that experience right. in their own life. And to, you know, and to be really conversant in the language. I think that is very, very important uh-huh. um, to know what those things are. Because again, when you name it, you can know it, right? And you can see it. Um, and so, and there's a lot of pushback. Oh, well, that's so, that's just, you know, all this political correctness. But like political correctness is really aimed at people not being assholes and and thinking before they speak, <laughs> uh-huh. thinking before they act. That's what that is. I mean, <laughs> if, and it takes it takes energy and effort. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> but I like that approach because the alternative is saying, you think you're a good person and you do all these mm-hmm 
things that are civic minded, mm-hmm. but you're actually not a good person. Right. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not telling people that why. they're bad you know, people. I know, I know, but like, <laughs> but that's how it will be. It will be received, right? right? right. And then immediately that person's going to shut down. But here's where and, pedagogy comes in. So you give them opportunities to practice on the thing that you're not talking about yet, right? You give them opportunities to practice with gender, to practice with. What if you're a white dude like me? <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes, but like you know, there, there, there. But there are tons of aspects of identity. I mean, like you know, you we have, um, uh, you know, in addition to race, ethnicity, we've got uh, your regional background. That's a part of your identity. Um, body image is a part of your identity because that is very culturally informed. Um, did I say class? Class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how does your class privilege you? How does it disadvantage you? the way your body looks. How does that privilege you? How does that disadvantage you? Mm-hmm. Um, your leisure activities, <laughs> you know, what does that say about how you are privileged in life? What does it say about how, like your your lack of access to leisure activities? What does that say uh, about your class, about where you live, about your access to leisure? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are all these different things, your family structure, you know, uh, a lot of times um, I'm, I've been married for 20 years. So a lot of people don't know that. <laughs> and, you know, it's it looks like a traditional family from the outside, but we're not traditional. But like your family structure might privilege you or disadvantage you. A lot of people thought that I was a single mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, they probably still think I'm a single mom because uh, my husband is not on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people are going to have a particular reaction to me thinking that I am a single mom. You know, maybe she's one of those black ladies that just whatever didn't want to get married or whatever. Um, I get a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> that sort of attitude. Um, or the husband and the dad right. split. Yeah, where's the baby daddy? That sort of thing. Um, and so the way you speak, your accent, that is a part of your identity. The language you you speak. Um, the my, my husband is West African, so he speaks with a francophone uh, French accent, um, and people will have a particular reaction. You know, they'll slow their speech down and get louder <laughs> uh-huh. because they think that. He doesn't understand them. And so all of those things affect the way you just, you are, the way you, people look at you, the way they react with you, the way they react to you or interact with you. Um, And so, you know, you're from Maryland, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Maryland. Michigan originally. Michigan originally, but I grew up in Maryland. You grew up in Maryland, right? And so- um, but I grew up in I grew up in Bethesda. Bethesda, you know, right? I, I was born in Gross Point, Michigan. <laughs> like I'm, you know, I grew up upper middle class and mm-hmm. then, you know, upper class mm-hmm. basically. Like I come from a privileged background and I'm a white dude. Mm-hmm. And I've gone through my life aware of that privilege, but not to the extent that you're speaking of. Mm-hmm. Like I haven't thought about it as broadly as I should have. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so, yeah, so all of these things, uh, and well, now's your opportunity mm-hmm. <laughs> to, right. to start thinking about those things. And um, and I and I feel like, you know, as somebody who's been in recovery for a long mm-hmm. time and who's been in therapy forever, like I'm, I feel, you know, f- fairly equipped to do the introspective part of this. Mm-hmm. And I know how to take, you know, personal inventory of my behavior. Like, I have plenty of work to do, mm. believe me, but I'm probably better suited to doing that kind of stuff than a lot of people who 
haven't had the privilege mm-hmm. to have some of those experiences mm-hmm. where they've been compelled to look inward right. in a way yeah. that I have. I mean, even, so I don't know what that means, yeah, no, but yeah. I think recognizing that that the work is hard. It's hard, too, and it's is important. It's hard for me. I mean, like it is yeah. so hard. What about? in your mind, like how does social media play into all of this? There's great things about it and terrible things. It's being, you know, weaponized for mm-hmm. villainous purposes, but it's also cast a spotlight on these issues mm-hmm. in a in a unique way that we haven't seen in the history of humanity. Mm-hmm. And I just know mm-hmm. that I can find myself paralyzed wanting to say the right thing or being mm-hmm. part of the solution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're smiling and, and yet feeling <laughs> like, do I really wanna hit publish on this? Like, what's going to happen? Did I get this right? Am I wrong? Where is that fear coming from? Why do I feel that way? Should I, should I not care? You know, you know, do you understand There's this thing? Like what's going so on with, much. It, with uh, this? Well, social media absolutely you know? plays, uh, I think both a positive and negative part, or a negative role in all of this. Uh, and I think that the big social media companies, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the other ones, TikTok. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, am I missing any? There's more. MySpace. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Friendster. Uh-huh. Like, you know, <laughs> throwbacks. Um, I think they have a huge responsibility. And, uh, and number one, figuring out, like, is this the world that we want to be in? Um, are we going to be the ones to, who enable racism to continue happening or sexism or, you know, with the whole like Gamergate, for example, you know, that just, just continues to go on and on and on. And, you know, all in the name of free speech, but what is free speech really? Like, what is it? (laughs) Uh, is it, you know, are we going to continue to, um, to denigrate people of, of certain races or sexes or genders or whatever, are we going to continue to let that happen in the name of free speech? You know, are we going to continue to endanger the lives of people uh, who are black, who are people of color, who are uh, women, (laughs) who are trans? And I think that, I think social media plays a huge part in that because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, look at what's happening with misinformation spreading. And, yeah, you know, we're, on we're, the various platforms. We're, you know, puppets in this massive mm-hmm. uh, experiment in humanity. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we're outfitted to really um, navigate it as consciously mm-hmm. as we should. Like, they're completely unregulated. These companies are, are you know, some better than others trying to figure out how to get their mm-hmm. heads around how to better, you know, create... Uh, a, a healthier environment mm-hmm. for global conversation, um, but it's not we're not doing a very good job. <laughs> you know what I mean? And 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 I think it's it's also making us aware of how easily manipulated we are when information campaigns are targeted in a specific way to get us to behave and mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. in a very specific right. way, and we haven't really figured out a solution for this. And yet it continues to grow and expand and become more and more a part of our lives. Yeah. And it's really scary. <laughs> it's, it's especially scary. And for, we're both yeah. beneficiaries yeah, of these we, platforms. Absolutely. Thank you, know? you everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Instagram. <laughs> which makes it make, which 
you know, creates a, another layer of like weirdness, right? It is, like, it is really weird. I'm, I'm participating in this thing. Mm-hmm. I'm benefiting from but, it, but it's also But you're trying to participate in a way that gives back and that gives good stuff to people, right? I, I'm trying. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and I, I mean, think I that, I, that I would say that of myself also. I, you know, I am not trying to, number one, spread misinformation. I'm definitely not trying to be racist or sexist or homophobic or, or what have you or classist. But then there are entities that are out there trying to do that. Uh, QAnon. Hello. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, they're finally trying to crack down finally, on the QAnon. Finally. How long did that take? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, 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 Speaking of, you know, being in a really weird space, like I just participated on this Facebook panel for community leaders. I have a very large community on Facebook called Fat Girl Running. It's amazing. You don't have to be fat mm-hmm. to join. <laughs> um, and uh, they really wanted to uplift black community, uh, Facebook group community leaders. Um, and it was a phenomenal discussion sponsored by Facebook, mm-hmm. u- utilizing uh, Facebook tools. That that's the the world that I want to be in, uh, but then you have the other side. But then of- you square that with <laughs> mm-hmm. their ad revenue model right. and what they're allowing mm-hmm. to take place there, and it doesn't it it's it's it almost feels like they're doing that to distract you from yeah. what they're really doing and what they're you know, how they're, what their business is really <laughs> mm-hmm. premised upon. Yeah. And it's confusing mm-hmm. when, you know, campaign advertising is just a drop in the bucket right. of how they make their money and it would be so easy for them to say we're dispensing with that right. and it really wouldn't affect their bottom line or their P&L in yeah. a meaningful way. Yeah, so what way. the question is what what is really behind that? You know, um, I mean, I don't know. It's a rhetorical question, mm-hmm. <laughs> but maybe it's not a rhetorical question. <laughs> yeah. You know, what is what is behind that? Uh, the fact that they won't end that. Mm. And by mm. you doing that panel, it just gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling. It does. It, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, Facebook all the way. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, and but I don't forget. I mean, there is a, a, a huge cognitive dissonance there where, you know, you have that part of Facebook, that really mm-hmm. sort of dark part of Facebook, and then the, but then all of the, the good stuff. And I, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep doing the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's never going to be balanced. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, you know, there's always going to be the, the dark matter <laughs> right. to contend with. But, um, but I think that's the way the world works. You know, even though there's a lot of dark stuff, there's a lot of heavy stuff. We have to, um, I think that, you know, if you have joy to exude, then you should. If you have good things to give, then you should. Um, maybe we won't win. <laughs> Well, you know, we should still do it. There is something to be said Mm -hmm. for, you know, the power of the camera that we all have in our pocket Mm. and the fact Mm. that so many of these incidents that have created Mm. the upheaval were documented on video and shared on social media platforms that catalyzed this conversation. There's a cascade effect where that leads to backlash and a lot of anger Mm -hmm. and all the other things that we're seeing at the same time. But we can't extract social media from the you know the current state of affairs with respect to the civil rights movement right, right. those things are are completely integrated in mm-hmm. a way that i think is new and there's certainly benefits to right. that as well and that and that it's the way that this generation operates you know you think about digital natives and like that is mm-hmm. the way 
that they live. You think of my son. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, who does everything online? What's his online? thing? Is, he tic- is TikTok his thing? No, Snapchat? TikTok is, is yeah. for young people, he thinks. <laughs> do you have a TikTok account? I do not have a you TikTok don't? account. My daughter's... <laughs> told me that I was not allowed to get a TikTok account. I'm also account. not allowed to. I was not allowed <laughs> yeah. to have Snapchat. Uh-huh. Um. <laughs> I had that for a while and my daughters were not happy. Yeah. I haven't used it in forever, <laughs> but. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a really interesting thing, uh, an interesting way that they live now. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is online and um and that's how they communicate with one another. Well, it's creating a whole new language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, my daughters communicate on TikTok, not through, like they'll make videos that are shared publicly that are in a weird way, like communications with their friends that mm-hmm. only they can decode. Mm-hmm. It's so strange. <laughs> yeah, my, my son you know? makes, uh, his big thing is making you. Uh, gaming commentary videos, uh-huh. and I have not seen any of does these. Does he do I this? Does him. he stream like a game? And does he, he doesn't do that too? stream. Well, he like he he'll play the game and then he. I don't actually really know what he does. Uh-huh. <laughs> but he has, a, he has a whole setup uh, yeah. in his room right. with a lot of computers and mics uh-huh. and stuff. And and then I hear him creating sound bites because that's what mm. they do, and uh, and then. Commenting on various people playing games and there's a lot right. of cursing. Um, and, um, Does that on YouTube? It's apparently it is. He will not allow me to see oh, any okay. of the videos uh-huh. because he says that they are cringeworthy. Uh, yeah. So, but you know that's that's a way of being for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether or not he's communicating with other people, I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, the world it's, it's is moving really fast, yeah. Myrna. Yeah, <laughs> it is. You know? It is. You know, I'm still on Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> right. Um, maybe I'll be dancing on TikTok. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> right. Um, all right. So let's go back to allyship. Like, what does it look like to you to be for someone like myself to mm-hmm. be like a good white ally? Um, I wish we could get rid of the word ally. Let's get rid of it then. What would you what, be an what advocate. should it be called? Be an advocate and do the work. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what it looks like. It looks like you um doing what you do now. Um asking questions of yourself. Um evaluating your behavior, your actions, your attitudes, your thoughts all the time. It's really really tiring, but that's what you have to do if you want to continue doing the work, if you want to be an anti-racist, if you want to call yourself someone who is an advocate. Um, I think ally is a term that's been diluted. <laughs> um, so I, I think a better a better way to think of, of doing this work is, is advocacy, advocacy for other people. Uh-huh. Um, and I like I like yeah. transcending the, the the some of these words. Yeah, you know like body I mean? positivity. I think, I think like people, that's another word that right. I can't stand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. When I was getting ready for today, I read an article. I was poking around the internet to see what was new with you that that I might not have have come across previously. And there was a, there was a woman who wrote an article that was titled something like "Body Positivity Isn't Enough. We Need Inclusivity," and it was premised upon her being mistaken for you. Did you see this? Uh, was it Latoya? I, I can't remember. I don't know. <laughs> or Latoya Graham? Yeah, we get we get confused uh-huh. all the time. <laughs> 
But it was interesting because it was all about like, because you're, you know, the moniker that gets attached to you is, you know, oh, she's the body positivity person. Mm-hmm. But it's really, it's about moving past that yeah. to something bigger and broader. Right. That's you can you can say right? that I believe all bodies are good bodies. You can say that, but do you really believe that? Mm-hmm. And um, are you going to welcome that person? Yeah, right. Are you going to welcome like I I am considered a small fat. <laughs> there are all these like all these names for differently sized uh-huh. fat, fat people. Uh there's like super fat and there's some other types of fat people, but like to a certain extent, I my kind of fatness is, is acceptable, but then anyone who's bigger than I am and, and a lot of the body positive community is not seen as acceptable. So like the the term body positivity, like what does it even mean? Does, the does striations it mean that, of the posi- right. body does positivity community. Does it even mean community? that all bodies are good bodies or are only certain bodies <laughs> good bodies? And so that's why that's why I, I try not to use the term anymore. Um, I, I do prefer to use inclusion because you include more and more people mm. into your sphere, mm. uh, whether it's body positivity, whether it's, um, you know, whether, whether we're talking about combating and dismantling racism. Mm. When you're giving your talks or you're going to all these races when there wasn't COVID, do you bifurcate the diversity training part of your brain and your advocacy from Myrna, the Myrnavator, the runner, <laughs> the inclusivity on the trails person, or are these all, do you think it's of these things? all as wrapped being, up into yeah. one sort of thing. Because when I get hired to speak, um, you know, I, all of the various things that I do and that I'm about, I mean, that's what I do, you mm-hmm. know? So if you invite me to speak, and chances are you inviting me to speak to uh, to either talk about diversity in the outdoors or um, or to talk about, you know, I, I give us a thing called, um, a, a workshop called Passion Forward, where I speak on your work being a reflection of your core values. And my core values, and I, I present my core values, my core values are joy, adventure, community, and inclusion. That's everything I am. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think that permeates anytime I, anytime I do a workshop, that, that sentiment of, you know, my core values permeate every single word that I say. Mm. I like that. I like the clarity mm. on your core values. It took me a long time. Yeah, how to, did you, how there. did you, how did you, what was that process Well, like? because people kept asking me about my brand. <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't, I'm not a company. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, now yeah. I am. But <laughs> it's a weird <laughs> you know, thing, isn't it? What's your brand? What's your brand? Uh, and then as I started looking into what a brand is, uh, there was a lot of talk about core values and guiding principles. I was like, oh, I can get with that. I know what my core mm. values are. Uh, and then, um, and then I had to... I was at an event um, that I wasn't supposed to be speaking at, and all of a sudden, I uh, was called to to speak in place of someone who uh, couldn't make their uh, their workshop. And I so I had to develop a workshop mm. uh, in twenty four hours um, on something career related. And so I'm really good at this. <laughs> like, oh, you want me to speak in twenty minutes? Okay. Uh-huh. 
Devin, any idea of what you want? Okay, I got it. I got it. Done. <laughs> so that's what I did. Well, that's from so I came decades up with this of being an educator, <laughs> a I would teacher, imagine. That would make me panic. Yeah. I wouldn't um, be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, it, had it been a, a few years before, I would have I would panicked. Because this was a, a new uh, community to me. This is a fancy REI type uh-huh. <laughs> outdoor community that I had to do this in front of. And so... I said, okay, well, I, I'm very happy that I was a teacher and I, and I know how to do that. I know how to put together a lesson plan and, um, you know, have some learning goals and, and some experiential stuff in there. And so that's what I did. And I, uh, so I said, well, you know, I can talk about my transition from being a teacher to doing what I do now and how I achieved, uh, how I was able to leave teaching and still kind of maintain some integrity about who I am. Mm-hmm. And this new thing that I do. And so, and then I came up with those four things as, as sort of my guiding principles, um, like in the couple of hours that I had before I had to do this, mm-hmm. this presentation. And so as I, you know, I've refined it a little bit um, and because uh, I had, there, there were some other things that were my core values, but those, those are the four that really, really speak to me and, and, um, and are really present in everything that I do. So, yeah. And are you still doing the, you've got these running retreats, the slow as fuck running <laughs> retreats? Did you actually do these or did, did. they get, did I you? I absolutely did. <laughs> That's uh, like the they, best name ever for a running out, retreat. They you know, over and over again. Because it's like, oh, all the fear that uh-huh. people have, like I can't do it a running retreat. It immediately tears down a wall. Right. Oh, yeah. well, I think I can do that. I can. I'm you slow know. as fuck. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so, right. and that. Where did you, what are those about? Where do you I, do those? Okay, so. <laughs> So yes, they are called slow as fuck trail running adventures, uh-huh. <laughs> and um, I I I created them specifically to serve a community that um, that is made up of runners. Uh, some of them are plus size runners, some of them are not, but but everybody's slow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and by slow, I mean we don't run. What if, 10 what if you're miles. fast and you want to go? I and I tell people, I said this is not for you. Uh-huh. This is not the experience for you um, because we're going to be on the trails. We will run. We will walk. We will take selfies. We will have a picnic. It'll be a whole day thing. This is not competitive. You should not be uh, – you should not consider this as training because we're just going to – We're going to pick We're going to play it by ear. By, yeah, play it by ear and, uh, yes, pick daisies, <laughs> smell <laughs> them. We're going to climb mountains. We're uh-huh. going to do some – we're going to do some sort of uh, reflection work um, and we're having a good time. So, uh, so yeah. Like How my, many the, people? The very first one I did was 22 people, which was a, a lot of people. <laughs> and do you just do it in your backyard trails well, or do you no, go somewhere? I, uh, I rent a house somewhere uh-huh. and uh, that's near a lot of trails and um, – yeah, and I bring people in. I contract a lot of people in to to do yoga, meditation. Right. To I, you know, had uh, Roz Mays, who's a pole dancer, come in <laughs> and huh. do some sensual movement without a pole, um, just so that and, and with the goal being that people uh, be, begin to get more comfortable in their own bodies and in, and in the space that they inhabit, and they transfer that out and onto the trails and hopefully in the rest of their lives. And so, uh-huh. uh, so that was fun. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that's what we do. Uh, another thing that I'm good at is bringing people in to create like a really fantastic experience that just is not only centered on me mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, I can 
people who I can, can talk about other <laughs> yeah. stuff, do give presentations, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, that That's are fun, cool. that are engaging. So uh-huh. uh, I, I did my first virtual. It wasn't called Slow as Fuck. It was Love Your Body. Yeah. <laughs> Love Your Body and Run uh, virtual retreat. And so we did that and uh, had some of the same people do. Like Roz did her mm. <laughs> sensual movement on Zoom. <laughs> mm. uh, you know, we, we we read and we did some writing. Uh, we talked. We did talk about body image in that. And then the beginning of the day and the end of the day were reserved for running. Uh-huh. And we, and every run was prompted. So you always had a prompt from the, the writing teacher uh, that was there that you'd be able to think about on your run. Right. So they're like theme based. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. That's cool. Yeah. That's the teacher in me. <laughs> yeah. When do you think we're going to be able to get back to doing stuff with people in person again? Oh, maybe the end of next year. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. I know. Do you have Zoom fatigue? I Oh, absolutely. Sometimes, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> I'm on right. Zoom a lot. Like, And everyone wants to meet now. Everyone, you know, what used to be a phone call. Right. Now we now, have to, it, it always to has Zoom. to be on video. You know? Or a FaceTime. I don't know. <laughs> no, not at eight o'clock in the morning anyway. I know. Uh, and sometimes I just, I will just turn my video off and like, I didn't, mm-hmm. this could have been a phone call. I find it very draining. It is because you always have to smile. You're always mm. on. My face hurts after every single Zoom. Yeah. You know, or Microsoft Teams or whatever uh, platform yeah. they're using. But uh, that is definitely tiring. But I think people really are are hungry for um, interaction and, and connection with human beings yeah. outside of their homes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I mean, I, I don't know. I just, this is like my one outlet where mm-hmm. I get to be with people. Mm-hmm. And other than that, I'm just at home aside from the occasional grocery store right, visit. Right. And uh, it's definitely, you know, I thought at the beginning of this whole coronavirus pandemic, stay at home thing, like I'm kind of an introvert, you know, basically I like to stay at home anyway. I go trail running by myself. My life isn't that different. But, you know, even for somebody like me who I felt, I feel like I've been training my whole life for this, like Mm -hmm. I'm going to be totally fine. It really has created like this melancholy Mm -hmm. that's, I think going to be, you know, we're, I, I think we're going to see a lot of mental health yeah. issues. You know, we're already starting to see it, but, you know, long-term. Mm-hmm. And what is it, what is the impact on young people? You know, my, I have a 16-year-old daughter and a 13-year-old daughter. Like, these are corona kids. Mm-hmm. Like, what is, 20 years from now, what is the imprint of this experience on how they think about right. life and what their experience is going to be? Right. I, I worry about my kid mm-hmm. who, um, who's, extremely independent uh, and I mean to a fault yeah. <laughs> and um, you know I remember the first couple of weeks that we were in lockdown um, this, kid, this kid's not afraid of anything but like in the middle of the night heard the wind knocking on the window and got freaked out and I was like okay please check in on your kids <laughs> Yeah. Because you know it was it was out of character. And they like, ran into my room. I was like, "What's that?" You know, and so uh, I was like, "Oh, whoa! This is uh, this is weird." Because you know, nothing wakes him up ever. Uh-huh. But clearly, he was having some anxiety about something, and uh, about not being able to. We travel a lot as a family, you know, not being able to travel, not you know, not being able to go outside without fearing uh, getting sick. Mm. Um, you know, he wouldn't go to the 
supermarket for a very long time. Like, yeah, what yeah, is like, the psychological implication of just being afraid to be mm-hmm. in the presence of another human being? Right, and it's and it's because they're in like in this like truly formative part mm-hmm. of their development right. as teenagers. And so whatever happen whatever happens now uh, is going to stick with uh, with everybody, right. but like particularly, you know, their brains are still developing, you know, that prefrontal cortex is not finished growing yet. And so, you know, I'm sure that there are, you know, some genetic imprints <laughs> yeah. happening now uh, because of, of coronavirus and yeah. lockdown and not, not being able to do the things that teenagers should be doing. It would be an interesting, like, sociological experiment to look at the kids who went through the 1918 pandemic mm-hmm. and to see, you know, what 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 kind of culture was like 20, 30 years mm. later and how mm. that impacted like choices that they made. Yeah. Because there's got to be a corollary there right. and something Absolutely. we can learn from that, from looking at that. Yeah. I don't know. Ooh. I know. Deep stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a difference um, living in, I mean, Vermont's a pretty progressive place, yeah. I, I would suspect That's compared to here. Georgia. <laughs> yeah, like it's got to be different for you. Vermont is magical. It is. I mean, I loved where uh-huh. I lived. Uh, I mean, like where, where I lived in Georgia, but I adore Vermont. Um, I mean, it is, for the most part, very progressive and um, and liberal. Uh, I mean, I'm very left leaning, so I mean, it's kind of the perfect place for me to be. Um, even though it is, I think the third whitest state. Yeah, it's pretty white there. <laughs> in, the, in the country. Um, but I definitely, I f- feel fairly safe. Mm. I, I live, everybody knows where I live. Mm. <laughs> uh, and where my son lives. Uh, Why does everyone know where you live? Because, well, I live on a very, uh, I live on Main Street. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I see everything and, and everyone passes through Main Street. Um, and, uh, and now that I now that we've been home, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Uh, when I started living there, I was still traveling a lot, and so I would come for like two or three days. What does your son do out. when you're gone? He is. Uh, my son is into culinary, uh-huh. and um, we call him GRTB for Gordon Ramsay the Black. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> because he's obsessed. Uh-huh. With Gordon Ramsay and That's also cool. culinary, so he right now he's actually right now having a cooking lesson with with one of my friends. Oh wow! Um, he's learning how to. He use didn't the, come on this trip here though. No, because mm. he didn't. He didn't want to. Mm. <laughs> he was. I said, "Hey, we're going to be staying at a nice hotel," and no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna enjoy the fact that I I'm the only one using the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> so right. uh, yeah, again, very independent, very. Um, Self-sufficient, um, loves cooking and loves um, playing basketball. So he's found right. a friend um, that plays basketball with him in in Montpelier, and you know he's he's having a good time. He really likes it, and like I, I don't worry about him. Mm. Uh, and we, and great. actually, Montpelier has a new police chief uh, who is black. Mm. Um, we'll see what that means. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, people are very, you know, people are very interested in social justice and they work actively towards it. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of discussion and, and conversation, um, you know, after, after we had our Black Lives Matter protests 
in Montpelier, <laughs> the number of people who said hi <laughs> to yeah, me right. as I was running on the rec path or, you know, people, you know, honking their horn, hey, <laughs> uh-huh. like, you know, you can always be nice to black right. people. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of like the Venmo thing, right? A little bit. It, it is, it is. And, and even for me, it's like, okay, you know, I reached out to you for you to come back on the mm-hmm. podcast. So that's, <laughs> is that really that different? You know, because I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I knew you were mm-hmm. a diversity teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a rapport from last time. And I was but like, oh, actually, you'll be great to come and talk to you. we know each other. Right. And we've had conversations. But, but I found myself you know. thinking, is she going to think that like, because I, I said the same thing to uh, to a friend of mine the other day. I was like, oh, so, you know, every black person's phone's ringing off the hook now, right? Mm. Uh, well, it's true. Yeah. And so- <laughs> And and I'm, I did that. I, I reached out to you for you to come back on, and I'm thinking, well, Myrna, think that's weird. You know, weird. No, or I think I think um, that's part of. I like, have the skill. Mm, yeah. So I, mean, you, I, so I think that for me, I saw the importance in exercising this muscle that I have in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion at this time, but not for everybody. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, because a lot of people did reach out. Um, you know, hey, can you talk about? This or that, you know, when when right. they're when we don't have any previous relationship mm-hmm. or uh, or because they don't know any other black people. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so I've, I've had to be very judicious about uh, choosing when and where I speak and um, and with whom. Right. Because uh, it are, is it is. Are some of your did, did some of your sponsors reach out to you? For oh, help yeah. trying to figure out how to communicate yes. around this. Yes. Yeah. Um, I hope you I hope you uh, charge um, them for that. Because uh, this is like <laughs> a big it's very important it's, how yeah. they configure their their, you know, corporate communication yeah. around mm-hmm. this issue that's so fraught at the moment, mm-hmm. right? Like that's a very valuable yeah. service. But I, but, I but I've definitely said that as I I can't solve your company's problems, you know, whatever they might be in terms of systemic racism or structural racism within the company. But what I can do is I can talk to your people and give them some mm. tools and strategies for um, for educating themselves and for examining their own attitudes. Because, I mean, that spills over into your work and your personal yeah. life, right? So uh, you will need to hire somebody else to deal with that higher the HR level Type of thing, or they're like, "Is this Instagram post okay?" Right. So yeah, thing. I don't do that, yeah. but I what I do is the the interpersonal stuff, mm-hmm. and um, and so yes, I've definitely um, I have some um, large clients. <laughs> which, Good, you should. <laughs> which I will tell you off the. I air. mean, you're you're the you're <laughs> you you're perfectly suited for that. You know, you have the experience. Mm. This is what you do. Well, you know what, so, and it's and I'm I'm really grateful, but it's it's also like it's very necessary work, uh, and you know if I can give to the movement in this one specific way, then I'm uh-huh. gonna continue to do it. All right, well, let's land this plane, but I can't let you go without getting a gauge on like, are we, are you optimistic? I am extremely yeah. optimistic, Good. but my optimism is definitely rooted in reality. So like, you know, I use, you know, what's going on now, uh, the awfulness of the situation or situations <laughs> mm-hmm. that we are in now. And and I use that to sort of fill myself with hope because I know that I know that things can be better. Mm. And that I know that things 
have been better. They can be better again, <laughs> but we have to do the work in order for that to happen. And so that's why that's why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. So someone's listening to this and this is like their initiation into thinking about this a little bit more deeply mm-hmm. than they have. Where does that person begin if they can't, you know, be privy to your to my very expensive or, course? <laughs> yeah, or like <laughs> like where where do you direct those people? Um, I, I I think you should be reading. I th- I think reading is really good. Um, uh, you know, you doing all of the uh, you know looking through all the checklists. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> 25 resources for anti-racism. Yeah, I, I, I think circulated that's important. Around. I think that's I think it's a very very uh, important yeah. starting point. But I also think that you should and it's very it's difficult now but you need to broaden your circle. You need to have you need to be proximate to different kinds of people. Um and start embracing their various identities. Um you know, examine your own examine the way in which you were socialized um, and then see other people, see others' identities, uh, embrace them, uh, welcome them into your life. I think that's a, that's the way to go. Mm. Thanks for coming here today. Well, it's my pleasure. It's yeah, always. It was fun. You're always welcome here, Amarna. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> um, good luck with the surgery in three weeks? Uh, weeks. At the end of August. End of August. Yeah. Um, what's the rehab plan for that? How long before you're back out we'll there? Start PT immediately the day after. Uh-huh. This is an uh, arthroscopic mm-hmm. thing. Um, at stay on the bike. I got some bike yeah. things coming up. Yeah. <laughs> um, a potential bike sponsor. <laughs> Oh, shameless <laughs> shout out. You know where to reach her. Um, oh, I already got one and it works. So oh, Okay, yeah. good. All right. Awesome. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I, and I, as soon as I can, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to push it. I'm not going to force it. I'm going to let my body heal because literally there are no races until mm, January right. and that might not even happen. Um, so I'm just going to let myself heal if I need to keep hiking and cycling for longer than I'm going to keep doing that. I mean, I still get to be outside yeah. and I'm in Vermont. Yeah. I can stand up paddleboard, even though I yeah. hate that, you know, <laughs> I can, I can do some climbing if I wanted to, I could, you know, I could mm. swim in a lake. So I'm, I'm good. Cool. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, if you want to, if you want to learn more about Myrna, check out the show notes on the episode page. I'll link up a bunch of stuff, including a bunch of the resources that we were talking about earlier. Definitely, we didn't even talk about your book. We talked about it last time, but a beautiful work in progress, which is a beautiful book. You did an Thank amazing you. job on that book. I highly suggest everybody check that out. You can listen to our earlier conversation, which I'll link up in the show notes as well. And you're pretty easy to find on the internet <laughs> at the Myrnavator, basically. <laughs> Right? Yes. All right, cool. Uh, Thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of your stay here. Peace. Plants. All right, we did that, and it was good. Hope you guys enjoyed that. She's just so lovely. What an incredible human being. My only regret from this conversation is that I didn't compel her or ask her to sing opera at the end, like I did at the end of our first conversation, episode 340. Go check that out if you missed it the first time. She has an incredible Juilliard-trained voice. And after the podcast, I was like, oh, I forgot to ask you to do it. And she said, oh, I was ready to do it. I was warming up and 
I was prepared to sing. So anyway, uh, again, my only regret. But that aside, I thought that was amazing. Hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Please give Myrna a shout out on the socials. Let her know how this one landed for you. She's at the Myrnavator on both Instagram and Twitter. We also have another roll-on AMA coming up this week. So if you would like your question answered, leave us a voicemail at 424-235-4626, or you can drop it on our Facebook group page. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on it on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube. Share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. I love seeing the screen grabs and little videos that people share and I tend to spread them around from time to time. So thank you for that. And you can support us on Patreon at ritual.com forward slash donate. Thanks to everybody who helps put on this show week in, week out. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis for videoing today's show. Jessica Miranda for graphics. Allie Rogers for portraits. DK for advertiser relationships and theme music by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here in a couple days with another Roll On AMA. Until then, be well, get outside, try to experience a little bit of joy, and maybe think a little bit more profoundly and deeply about body inclusion, diversity, and uncovering our own unconscious beliefs. Peace. Plants. <laughs>